Hi, you're listening to the Via Agency's POVIA podcast, where we share our point of view on how brands can make the most of the latest in tech, media, and culture. If you're looking for fresh perspectives on the world of advertising beyond the front pages of your favorite news outlets, you're listening to the right podcast. Today, I'm joined by... Stanti. I'm a client strategist. I was previously a project manager, so... So many perspectives. This is good for the POV podcast. If anybody knows me, they know I don't have a shortage of perspective. Good. All right. Uh, next, we have... Lane Harris. I am head of innovation and technology. I'm Loro, executive creative director. And I'm Leo. I'm a planner. So we're going to do a slightly different take this time around. Instead of talking about one thing, we're going to go around the horn and talk about some things we found in the news that we have some perspectives on. Uh, I can, I'll, I'll go first. My story this week was about how uh, the FTC is finalizing its antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. And I feel like, so FTC's has a relatively new chair, this woman, Lena Khan, who kind of came up from like the academic side trying to shoot down big tech. Like that's kind of what she's known for. I was surprised to see that like finally it seems like there is the rubbers hitting the road with this this antitrust lawsuit. And it sounds like it'll cover every aspect of the business from how they charge for prime, how they handle advertising, everything. My my take on it was like it's great to see this in the news. Like even if it's getting coverage, it forces people to think about it. I'm also like, yeah, I don't think this is going to go through. The FTC in recent history has failed in a number of attempts to break up big companies. So Microsoft bought Activision. You're a gaming person. Did yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been complicated. It's uh, I, I, Prior to like, I think the 90s, uh, it used to be a lot easier to break up companies and, and it's it's becoming legislatively so much more difficult to do yeah. that. And there really hasn't been a successful antitrust lawsuit, I think, since the 90s. Like, it's been incredibly challenging. I have que- a question as the dummy at the table. Why is it called antitrust? Uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. It's the United States law, which prescribes the rule of free competition among those engaged in commerce. Um, it prohibits anti-competitive agreements, unilateral conduct that monopolizes or attempts to monopolize. It authorizes the DOJ to bring suits to prohibit. I mean, anti-monopoly would be a better, yeah. Like, yeah. like I think terminology today, but I think at the time, like the idea of a of a big joint effort of, mm-hmm. of a monopoly was called the trust. Back okay. Then. But I also, like, this says the law attempts to prevent artificial raising of prices. So it's less about, like, blocking innovation or, like... Oh, yeah, it's... It's just price, which I feel like... It's monopolistic behavior. Like, if you own an entire industry, there's no opportunity for competition, which is considered, particularly in that 1950s and 40s, was, you know, anti-American. There's a big, you know, there was a big concern about, you know... Oh, McCarthyism. Yeah, McCarthyism. Communism, which feels like communism if it's a single entity industry. So I think that's where a lot of this was born. I I guess my take is I'm curious about how many Americans would actually feel a benefit from this. Like, I think I, I I will be honest. 
I know that Bezos is um, kind of a money-grabbing monster who doesn't pay taxes, but also I like that I can get my kitchen sponges delivered to me before the previous ones run out or, like, get too moldy. uh, It made me think of a few different things, but to your point, uh, 66% of the U.S. of percent of U.S. adults are Prime members, which just... That's more people than, like, vote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the subscribe and save uh, continues to grow, like the trends on that, like your sponges thing. So, yeah, my, my take was like, I, I don't think it's going away because I think there's still value to the consumer in it. And I, Lane, you had mentioned um, this guy, Cory Doctorow, fighting against all yeah. his digital rights management. Like, I think we all like to talk about fighting Bezos and, um, you know, pushing back against it but it's just hard hard to fight against convenience and like the value it seems but there is a lot of really bad behavior you know you know microsoft was a pretty good example of in the 90s of um, just really bad behavior where they would you know buy up companies block out new competition like you know without producing anything of a better quality themselves like there's there's plenty of examples apple being also a culprit here of like Technologies that maybe that they didn't want to introduce for whatever reason, right. they would buy up the patents for and then bury. I mean, electric cars was another good example of this, where oil companies were actually with the biggest purchasers of electric car patents. So we have companies, right? So because obviously for for anti-competitive reasons, so you know the, it is problematic when when corporations see their their you know personal objectives or their, you know, their corporate objectives overshadowing yeah, things like innovation and, and competitive uh, businesses like that. That's, that's a problem. Yeah. That's, that's a problem for America. Yeah. To the consumer, you don't know what you ain't, what you ain't getting if it ain't being made, but you do know what you're not going to get if Amazon becomes punctured in this way. Like, I'm speaking from a buy a buyer's a consumer's perspective. Right. I don't know what amazing, convenient yep. innovation has been blocked from me by Amazon, and I'll never know. But I do know that if you guys fuck with Amazon, I don't get my kitchen sponges in three days. Or you get it from a potential competitor. She's got to go to multiple different websites: one for her sponges, one for baby food. I'm a working mom. My, my takeaway is I don't think they're going away. People, it's just, you know, we talk a lot about providing value to consumers. Like, this is that, and it's not going away. So as advertisers, we just need to be aware that, like, if you get seen on Amazon, you need to pay to play. So what would it look like if this were to be successful? Like, what would a post-antitrust Amazon look like? Okay, imagine, like, Amazon, you know... uh Shopping being its own company, like like the Amazon owns like yeah million the web services stuff is yeah like a massive they they basically own the internet like they they provide something like seventy percent of of the infrastructure for all of the internet like that seems strange that's a business bundled with movies and shopping but, and yeah. sponges and delivery and Whole Foods and whatever you you, you pile it on yeah I should cut up some kind of like post apocalyptic show on Prime. Do we want to go to our next story? My story was about one of the largest manufacturers of cardboard. Uh, the the sales are down, and and what the, the 
the point of that is, is that's an economic indicator that uh, people are buying as much things are they're not moving as much product around. I, it jumped out to me just as is someone who likes data and and kind of is interested in that is that that economists look at some of these like secondary indicators to sort of recognize like how the economy is doing. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, that technique, I guess, is interesting. Are there indicators that we could be looking at, I guess, to identify things like trends or conversations or communities or whatever it is that 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 we're interested in in these sort of like oddball places and not that cardboard is particularly oddball i just thought it was like yep. it at least got me sort of thinking about that but I, I just think it's interesting to look at these sort of you know some strange moments and determine what's happening in the world can we we can segue to scary talk this is going to be a plug for via and the birches lane rigged up screen to show us what the top trending hashtags are on tiktok and the top 12 we can go around and look top 10 at least were scary early at least 12 yeah People are ready for the autumn vibes. The PS that looks up. The Leo Pumpkin Spy Flaunt. Yeah. That's scary. Maybe there is a, yeah, maybe that's the indicator is the PSL moment. Get out of the When do we start talking about scary, scary stuff? When the PSL, like, yeah. I don't know, when that happens. Uh, I used to work on Starbucks actually, and then the PSL moment is a really big deal. It's like it's something they plan for like the entire year, and they, they tend to move it up. Yeah, I was just going to say, I grew up like a couple of days like every, every year. year. It's, it's like, it's like all of a sudden it's like at the end of July if you're yeah. talking about, you know, the pumpkin sis lot day. Do we want to talk about your end to greenwashing story, Stani? The uh, SEC is expected to announce some new regulations for climate reporting, specifically like ESG reports this fall. We were doing some research on another brand and it was like a big producer of meat. And so I was doing a lot of research on meat production, which is pretty upsetting. I'm a little pessimistic when it comes to these sustainability reports but i'm just looking at this like 55 page sustainability report and i'm like read it all no absolutely not but i just was looking at it thinking wow the amount of resources that went into putting this report together alone just to say like hey of all the bad guys we're less of a bad guy and Mm -hmm. and and then i like looking at the recycling table and chart it's like how much cardboard was recycled and it was like 12 and then you like look at the asterisks and it's like million tons you know like our units are in these insane numbers really the takeaway for me was it's just going to increase the amount of data that's in the system and how much information people are going to be required to um collect and um more data means more conversations and that there's also just gonna be more jobs where people have to be reporting on this stuff like all of these companies are going to have to hire like at least a full-time person to do this reporting. Well, there's automation. I, I think automation yeah. will, will change a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it's one thing to, like data election alone is like a really challenging mm-hmm. exercise. Mm-hmm. But but analysis is very subjective. And, and like if you if you have automation as part of that analysis path, like, like I feel like we can start creating pictures that are a little more honest like like if you you can imagine like you could literally like sort of chat gpt your way through your reporting like you could ask it like right how much waste did we do and you would get a much more yeah honest sort of report rather than having a human sort of like try to figure out like well over here we were good but over here we were bad and so i'm going to average this out to be this weird number it becomes a little bit fuzzier and i think yeah. that's what these esg reports and are. that's something that was interesting for me to learn was that like these 
for a lot of these companies, even though the ones that are reporting these numbers, they don't have the systems necessarily in place because it's not a common practice to report on all right. this data. So like the, by requiring all of these other companies to do that, like they're kind of forcing them to develop better data collection techniques, which I think will only benefit us. I th- and I think the other thing for me was if there is now going to be this baseline, like you said, if 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 everyone does the chat GPT sustainability thing, then like, where are we going next? You know, there's few standout companies that do it really well, but if the if the floor is raised, that means it's we're going to need to think outside of the box to prove how we as a brand could do it differently to get noticed. One of my first jobs out of college, um, I was working on a major food and beverage brand, like maybe the second largest in the country. Um, And one of my job roles was to devour their sustainability reports every year, which, by the way, we similar to PSL production, (laughs) we started, you know, six months before the thing was released. That's how in-depth these are. And I had to turn them into like social posts for this company's corporate uh, social channels, which no one looked at. And, and so I'm thinking like it was all about editorializing these claims that were pretty dense and meant nothing. You know, like it was like we're diverting 800 million gallons of clean water, like messy, meaningless to the average consumer. And my job was to turn them into somewhat digestible social content. The reason I'm even bringing this up is because it made me think about who is consuming this information anyway. There's already so much work being put into making it look palatable and making it look impressive and also understandable to the average consumer. Sanzi, looking into these things, you did it because it was part of your job. Right. Same here. Like, who is who is really consuming these anyway, A? Yeah. B, are people going to start paying more attention to them if they become a little more standardized? Maybe. Probably a niche group of people who probably have lots of money yeah. and care. Well, that's why I mentioned my my position at that company, because it was on their corporate page, which really only spoke to suppliers, partners. Yeah, for 100 percent, it was for shareholders. And it's just like we're kind of talking to ourselves a little bit with these things already. One of the other things that I think is a little bit more applicable to us, what then I discovered during the dig was that the um, FTC has a like green guide for like how how brands um, should handle their like environmental impact marketing claims, and there's also loopholes there. But it's like it's another you know thirty five page forty page document. There's just like this gigantic omission of the word sustainable in that document. So they companies and they can just say something sustainable even though it's not because it doesn't specifically say anything in the screen guide it just makes me think about all uh you know and these like fast fashion and companies that she pointed at me when she i did and did i i'll do it again um (laughs) these like fast fashion companies that are saying like oh choose this line because it's more eco-friendly or it's more sustainable or something. And as consumers, we're all trying to do a better job. And so we're like, okay, this is an easy decision to make, but it's really like unfounded. You know, there's no real benefit there. I I have a little bit of hope. Please. I have a little bit of hope there. And it's that, and I'm going to come back to just because I'm so deep in into some automation, 
I feel like what you're saying, and this is true, is particularly in, in America where we're very litigious, that we like to bury problems in paperwork, right? Like, like I'll create a 200-page document that covers my ass that nobody's going to read, but everybody sort of knows that I went to the trouble of making it, therefore it's probably all covered in there, and let's move on, right? Like, that seems to be the, the sort of standard operating procedure for anything sticky, right? No matter what it is. That's been the case for a long time. But if you can have automation read that same document and then ask the juicy parts, ask the questions that you really care about. Right. To summarize, like, what are they, what is, where's sustainable in this document? And like, what are they, what, and yeah, and like, what's, yeah, exactly. Like, like, tell me, summarize, like, what they actually mean by they're doing things the correct way. And you're going to get that, that digestible response. Uh, you know, off of that 200 page document that says, actually, they're not doing it at all. And here's why. And then you can go right to page 68 and it'll tell you this, this, this point that's really clear here. I feel like that level of automation is going to make the burying the point in paperwork much harder moving right. forward, which means that either corporations are going to need to get more clever about how they hide their, their dirty laundry. Or it, on the other side of things, it's going to give activists the opportunity to have to call people out, yeah, to, to pounce, to do to do things that we weren't able to do before. I feel like that those two sort of elements will create a little bit of more mm-hmm. progress, or at least equilibrium, so that it feels a little bit more fair. Like I'm not a lawyer, and I'm intimidated by by legal documents. Like I'm less intimidated by the ability to summarize it in in ways that I understand it. It's a great. I think there's still like a, a a balance of value and convenience versus doing the right thing. You know, like if when you go to buy your sponges, they're cheap and they come before you need them. Great. That's a really valuable thing. But they also, the wrappers kill whales. Like where is the, like at what point are you like, no, 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 I just sleep at night. Probably shouldn't continue buying these. I mean, I get on a little soapbox. But it's not my job to stop buying sponges because I'm just one girl. I'm just one busy mom. It is like fucking Lysol's job to make better sponges. I I, I disagree that there's no consequences, though. I mean, like, like there are, I mean, this is an extreme example, but, you know, the the Japanese nuclear plant that got flooded and there was Kishula. They're releasing the water. Now releasing the water that can be. Yeah, but it's. That it's supposedly. Guaranteed under the levels of poison. That's what they're saying. And, hey, you know, hey, you know who doesn't trust, you know, uh, nuclear energy plants? Uh, but, but, they, but, the conce- but the consequences are, you know, countries like China are saying, well, we're not doing business with you anymore. Period. Like, we're not going to buy our seafood mm-hmm. anymore. We're going to, like, hurt you economically for making this decision. Like, like yes, it's a big, bigger sort of, you know, extreme example. But, like, like there are moments of where, where choices do matter and people... It just depends on on how high profile the, yeah. the problem is. People can make that alternative decision. It's not it's not difficult to use the to at least choose to use the walnut husking versus the other. It's it's available. It's in the same shopping area yeah. that you're purchasing your other products from. It's sort of up to you know the individual consumer at that point, and that yeah, then then it becomes about marketing, right? Like how how strongly do you believe the message that 
the issue to edge. Let's play our game. One of these brand partnerships is real. This is an ongoing between a tech and non-tech. Samsung and Ezekiel Bread collaborate to blend high-tech living with wholesome nourishment. Bread? Like the seed, the like sprouted bread. Delicious. And Samsung, the next one is um, Nike and Airbnb forge innovative partnership to elevate travel and fitness experiences. That's interesting. Let's put a little more and then this one, um, this is from Food and Wine. Ego just dropped a boozy brunch in a jar that tastes just like waffles. There's no way the bread. I think I know. I think the Ezekiel bread is the one. Stranger than fiction, because I feel like we would have seen the Airbnb and Nike one. That's true. It's almost too. Oh, you think that's the true one? I think the Ezekiel bread one is true. True. Yeah, I think the Ego one is true. I think the Ego one is true too, because it seems like waffle flavor. Alcohol, like, yeah, okay. It seems like, yeah, but whatever. They have every flavor of I Yeah, like moonsh- waffle moonshine. I don't think waffle. I think I saw that. All right, so it wasn't a very hard one. Well, yes, Ego was right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last ball, Ego and Tennessee's Sugar Lands Distilling Company, which I've never heard of, collaborated on an adults-only cream liqueur called Egonog. Was it an official partnership or was it in there? Ding, got it. Egonog. Egonog. And then this, this one is it's a cream liqueur it's called sipping cream it's ego branch in a jar it combines the flavors with buttered and toasted ego waffles savory bacon slices and a drizzle of maple syrup ew where do you think they paid for that partnership like do you think uh, they were like we're a small batch whiskey company and we want to give yeah ego money i feel like, like they it's someone they, knows someone like, it's got to be old friends. Like, I, I only say that because I work in, I mean, we all have, right? Partnership. And sometimes they're very expensive. Like, I, I worked on an Oreo campaign with Transformers, and they, the Oreo paid a significant amount of money to the Transformers, like, franchise, which, I don't know, it's strange to me, like, considering you're basically promoting their movie with your yeah. your packaging, but, but they did. They paid a lot of money. And it'd be interesting to know, like, what are these smaller partnerships really consist of. I wonder if it's one of those things, Lane, that you've mentioned before. That's like they made like one of them. Like they maybe they it's not even real. Yeah. It's just for the movie. Just for the headline. Hey, thanks for listening to this month's POV podcast. If you liked it, subscribe and stay tuned for next month's.